This is the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Now please welcome your host, Ed McKnight. Hello and welcome along to the New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight, and I'm here in the studio today with Francis Valentine, who is the founder of both the Tech Futures Lab and the Mind Lab. Francis, welcome. It's great to be here. Uh, and for those that who are listening to the podcast who aren't aware, what is the Tech Futures Lab and at the same time the Mind Lab? So um, both are actually relatively new uh, organisations. Actually, the Mind Lab came first, and it was really set out to provide a lab environment where students from schools could come in and learn about new technologies. And so what I looked at, I looked at my own kids, thinking they missed an entire area of the curriculum, which was digital technologies, thinking how do they learn how to code, how do they learn how to do things like animation, uh, electronics, lots of science subjects. And so I thought, well, actually, if they're not getting this within the system, they're never going to choose careers that actually are part of the new evolution of the world in, in terms of you know, STEM or science, technology, engineering, maths. And the solution seemed pretty apparent that I would just open a facility where the kids could come in. Little did I know how much of that would resonate with other uh, parents and schools and teachers and suddenly found ourselves in a situation where we had teachers saying, hey, great to teach the kids, but actually, what about us? And so uh, only within a few months of opening, we actually partnered with Unitech, developed a postgraduate qualification for teachers. And since then, we've now teach a postgraduate program, a year-long one, that starts every 16 weeks to another five, for another 500 teachers. So we've sort of going across the country. So we're now uh, delivering programs across 31 locations. And uh, so that's really focused in my lab around kids, uh, around 40,000 students per year, and then these teachers who are coming through. And it's worth noting that teachers in New Zealand on average are 55 and female. Um, principals on average are over 60. So we have an ageing teaching workforce, which in its own right is not an issue, but it means that we don't have enough young teachers coming through, and we certainly have a lot of teachers whose lives and the way they teach and the curriculum has changed fundamentally since they started. So that's a pretty big challenge that we have. Mm. And arguably now you're, you're one of the leaders in um, New Zealand's tech industry. Do you, do you feel like your education really lacked in technology or in specifically in Digitech? Yeah, so uh, interesting enough, I did no technology um, going through high school. And in fact, the only thing that was remarkably even like technology was I did technical drawing and then I was kicked out because I was a girl and told that it wasn't a subject for girls to have. So I actually got interested in technology on the outside of school. I sort of became self-educated and curious about where technology was going. And interesting enough, um, in terms of Tech Futures Lab, which is my more recent uh, venture, which was about a year and a half old, I realised there's so many people like me who are actually a little bit too old for have technology in school. There wasn't really a subject as such, and technology in, in my time was either woodwork or metalwork. Um, and not even these days, food tech is part of that suite. But even back then, it, that was home economics, and certainly wasn't a subject associated with technology. And so there's a lot of people who have done really well in their careers, but technology has been something they've learned almost by default. Mm. 
And I remember we, we just found out before um, we started recording the podcast that Francis and I are both from uh, a small little town in South Taranaki called Harbour, which has about 10,000 people. And we uh, grew up on the same street. <laughs> which is just amazing, isn't it? Just how small this country really is. Uh, not at the same time, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a few generations apart, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, I'm not sure if you went to Harbour Intermediate, but... Um, did I did. I did my Harbour Intermediate. I did, yeah. Yeah, and I remember that one of the technology uh, subjects that we had to do um, was sewing. And um, I and it was with Mrs. Howie, who was infamous because she was there for about twenty or thirty years. Um, you might have also been. I think by probably her. I did actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I think back now, and um, and I think sewing is not a skill that has actually been that useful. And I wish that I had been doing more ICT and tech because that's actually what's relevant to me now. Yeah, and it's funny, it was actually Howard High School where I was told I couldn't do technical drawing. So um, it goes just to show how far the world has changed their views about gender-based subjects, but also having a lot more choice. I mean, now if I look at the choices available within high schools, they're so expansive that actually it's how to choose just a few of them to carry on in your career. And uh, the, the reason I brought Francis in here today was because we were both... Uh we were both speaking at the CEO Summit a couple of months ago. Uh, she, was, she was on before me and she said the most interesting thing about New Zealand's young professionals that the education that we went through wasn't fit for purpose for in terms of what we're going to have to do in the future. Yeah, so um, I mean, it was a general statement, but the problem we have right now is for a lot of people, and millennials that make up the majority of New Zealand's workforce now, that they have gone through a legacy education system which actually reflected mine. There's almost no difference. In some cases, they learnt from the same examples, the same textbooks. They were taught in the same way, lots of bricks and mortar, um, chalk and chalk and talk delivery. So there was very little collaboration. There was no co-creation. There was certainly very little experimentation and and if you think about the way we work now you know it's about adaptability it's about collaboration it's about working on projects none of that is actually taught in the school system except for strangely enough at primary intermediate school by the time you get to high school we sort of fall back into a much more traditional model not completely but you know overall and then university is pretty much as it was 20 years ago. Mm. And even uh, I, I get quite a few, a number of people coming in here who have recently graduated from university and we start talking about how useful it was. And the answer is it probably wasn't. Yeah, I think that's something we've got to really think about. Uh, in my time at university, I was in one of the very few last years of education being free and actually almost nobody went to university because the job market was really buoyant and actually you could choose what kind of industry you wanted to go into. And, and now it's become almost the default norm. Everybody goes to university, even though about half of the people who start a degree never finish it. So it's not a very effective. It's fact, more than half don't make it through. And then on top of that, the number of people who go into the industry that they trained for is, is again, a smaller subset. Uh, and then people change many times throughout their lives. So then you mm. start going, well, what is the role of university? And which roles do we really need to go to uni- university for? And which would we, we be better off actually learning on the job? Mm. which is going back to more like apprenticeship type of model. Yeah, but then again, to challenge that, we often hear, particularly from people who've been through arts degrees, saying that, well, you definitely, because the world is changing so quickly, we should be taking arts papers because it teaches us how to think and it teaches us about 
humanity. I mean, what would you say to that? I absolutely agree with that. I think arts, papers, and you know, philosophy, I think, is something everyone should learn. Learning to learn, understanding why people make decisions, the impact. You know, there's a whole lot of things that I think having an understanding of people and philosophy really helps. But I think that's something that should be integrated within the school system from day one. That actually children at five years old should be fundamentally understand what it means to learn, why we learn, what the processes are, how do we get and value different points of view, how do we imagine the consequences of decisions that we make. And so I think it's a critical uh, piece of education, And but I think it is something we will find implemented far more at a younger age than just waiting for university. Mm. And you shared, um, before we started, a, a very interesting stat that came from, uh, remind me of the TV show. So, so well, it was it was mentioned on the What Next TV show, uh, which was run over the last week, uh, looking at the future of New Zealand at 2037. But the stat came from the Association of Chartered Accountants of New Zealand and Australia, which was currently in New Zealand there's 17, 17 say, and a half thousand accountants. And by the, the year 2037, uh, the association imagines there will only be 17, that's one seven, accountants needed in New Zealand because everything else will be automated. Um, and so that's a pretty shocking stat if you are thinking that you're graduating from university or you've been a recent graduate and that in 20 years, potentially your entire career won't even exist because the industry won't exist. Um, so that puts a dilemma about what do you do and you keep evolving. But I want to add every other sector has the same challenge. So mm. accountants are no different. It's just that accountancy has been around in such for such a long time, in the same way that law has been, that we sort of imagine it's going to be around for generations and generations to come. But that's just simply not the case. Mm. I totally agree. It's interesting that we, we often think of... Um of industries and jobs that, that are safe from automation. Uh, and I often talk to, to builders in particular who, or, or specifically if they're in um, new home construction thinking that their jobs are safe. But then now there are more and more companies out there trying to 3D print houses. And instead of taking uh, three months to build a house, they can do it in about 24 hours or 72 hours. Yeah, and look, even before you start looking at 3D printing, which is still in its infancy, you're talking about largely automated processes. So you're having prefabricated houses, which are almost stack, stack and, and you know together, already pre-plumbed, pre-wired, coming out of China. You know, you're putting the external um, fabrication on the outside of the building, but actually the job itself is mostly done at a fabric, fabrication stage in a warehouse. So yeah, those jobs are going. We've, we've got a company, for example, in Australia called a Fast Brick which is a robotics company, which does all the bricklaying for houses with just one machine. And, you know, you start the machine up, it's like a, like a mini crane. The first of those machines have arrived in New Zealand. So we've now got a technology where a machine can lay all the bricks and foundations to remove the bricklayers. Um, we have tiles for roofs, which now take solar energy and convert it and store it into power walls so that we've got a way of getting off the grid by actually having just a different roof tile. You know, we've got ways where you can store um, power inside windows and actually, so it's harnessing the energy from the sun, storing it back to the grid as well or back to the house. You know, almost every part of construction has changed. And so we're, we're, on one end we can talk about 3D printing, but actually there are so many processes in between that have been automated or in the process. And in literally any, any um, area, any industry, if you said to me, I can tell you how, that's already been disrupted. And it's just a matter of time because where things can be done faster and cheaper, they will be. Any industry? 
I think you could almost, yeah, if you can put an industry, with the exception of things like physiotherapy, counselling, nursing, you know, where you've got a lot of human contact teaching, um, some of these will be changed, but they won't be dramatically impacted in the way that, say, law will be. Say it's like an industry like like personal training. How how is that being automated? Yeah, so now what we're looking at is personalized medicine. So to get your genome sequence now, so even a few years ago it was tens of thousands of dollars. Now it's less than a hundred dollars. So for example, I've had mine done, which gives me a full suite of understanding how I should train, you know, how my body processes different types of food, you know, anything from alcohol to caffeine. Um, and so basically now I could take that information to a doctor or to a personal trainer and say, this is my, this is the way my body responds, how it metabolizes. They would put together a program based upon scientific data. So they would, one, need to be able to read the data, two, be able to interpret it in, in a digital format. And three, they would probably do something like give me a digital tattoo, which is like literally a bit like a Band-Aid on, on steroids, which is not quite, but you stick it on your arm. It feeds back to my mobile device. It tells me every day the fitness things from, a, um, you know, how far I've walked to, what my heart rate was, to how many calories I ate, to, you know, what's the iron levels in my body. So everything becomes this very predictive and subscriptive way. So you're almost having personal trainers um, as a service that they would be based upon you as an individual. And so they really are going to have to be quite technically minded. They, mm. they are digital roles. And there are, there are two thoughts that come from that. First, first of all, um, and you don't have to answer this, but it's really interesting. It'd be really interesting to hear if you had, um, if you'd noticed anything um, that was a little bit of an anomaly when you got that. Well, we got, <laughs> like, I'd be really interested to hear, you know, how does my body um, process caffeine? Or in terms of alcohol, I know I'm such a terrible lightweight that surely I'm processing it differently than other people. Um, but the, the more important point is um, that it seems like those jobs aren't being automated, they're changing. And that's a big part of it. So automation doesn't mean annihilation. It's a very different thing. Automation means the parts of the job that probably are not very exciting anyhow are being taken Mm -hmm. over by machines, but actually the human part is really important. And where any industry deploys a huge number of people in, uh, sorry, a huge amount of automation, normally the job numbers increase. But the skills of the people they employ are vastly different than the skills of the people who perhaps got automated out. Mm. So in the case of uh, right now, we, for example, New Zealand Post or uh, Auckland Ports are losing a number of people through automation. The people they're hiring to replace them are highly digital. You know, they understand digital transformation. They've got technical skills. They work on a way of collaboration. So they are more likely, for example, to collaborate across you know, cities, countries, working in teams, they've got agile methodologies deployed, they're using things like Slack channels, um, they bring specialist knowledge, they are on short-term contracts, they're not full-time permanent employees. You know, so the model changes, but the the whole employment model changes in terms of the shift from permanent long-term careers to more bite-sized changing, dipping in and out of careers and reskilling and, and you know, so it's training, learning, training, learning. It's mm. going to be the model going forward, particularly if we're going to keep working through to you know seventy-five to eighty years old before we retire. So I'm now convinced that uh, my job is going to change probably about a hundred times for retirement. So what can young professionals do, especially the the sixteen thousand or so accountants or seventeen thousand accountants who are now convinced they're going to get automated? What do we do as New Zealand's young professionals to adapt for that? So the brain is made to learn. And I think that we've had this very long time under the industrial education model where we front-loaded education. We said, you know, learn until you're about 23 and then you're good to go for life. 
and you probably followed in the footsteps of your family or a family member and all of that has changed. So now we have to say this brain that needs a lot of work needs to be constantly having um, stimulate, stimulus to actually you know, keep, it, keep it moving and keep it learning. Education has never been more accessible. The entire world, no matter whether you live in Ethiopia or you live in, you know, in Rotorua, you can access the same specialist knowledge. And I think online we have a thing called MOOCs, which is an acronym for Massive Online Open Courses. Now, MOOCs are free almost always. Um, you can learn anything from origami to machine learning. You know, you could, you could be doing ancient history right through to, you know, teaching yourself robotics. And they are a, a self-paced, so you can deep dive or you can skim across the surface. You can choose to go through one that actually gives you, validates some, through some form of uh, credentialing or badging, or you can just choose to do it for fun. But industry have moved a long way, and they're not actually caring in the same way whether or not you've got a formal qualification. What they want to know is what do you know and how do you apply it? So if you walked into an interview tomorrow and they said, tell me about the last digital transformation project you worked on, and you went, oh, uh, I haven't done one, then that's going to be of more of a concern than saying, do you have a qualification? Um, So what what companies increasingly want to know is how do you work with others and how much do you know about the changing world? And that stuff is actually really accessible, but it does mean you have to find, one, the interest and the the time to do it because it's not something someone else can do for you. You you have to make that commitment yourself. Mm, And even if I think about our hiring process at at Hatch, which is my little digital agency or the one I work for, um, we, we often aren't, we don't ask technical questions a lot of the time because you can learn that stuff. We're, we're, we're hiring for attitude and we're asking questions about culture and um, are you the type that if we that if we leave you alone and we don't tell you what the answer is that you're going to figure it out for yourself often we've got this we've got this terrible little metaphor and I think we might have mentioned it on one of the earlier episodes um, about feeding seagulls that you can't just give people answers because it's like feeding the seagulls they keep coming back for more yeah. so you've got to leave them to um, figure it out for themselves and you've got to hire people who are willing to do that yeah and look even large companies and globally EYs are good example where they've realized now that one they don't require people to have degrees and secondly they now know that a b student brings more value to a company than an a student and that's because over time they've actually realized the value of a b student is they don't necessarily have the ability just to regurgitate the answer that they learn to memorize but they actually have the ability to go and discover solutions and so we're moving away from this everybody wants to be an a student at the best university to saying companies like your, your own where they're saying you know how collaborative are you and how adaptable are you and can you learn a new language or can you you know can you go and talk to a client very easily and 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 bring them on board they're looking for those the magic kind of creativity and communication skills far more than they ever have need actual formal qualifications and that's throwing you know many people into kind of a uh, into disarray in terms of their thinking but I learned everything formally and I'm all about the qualification the next generation the under 18 year olds they honestly have already worked this out and I think that the millennials have got to really watch their back because Generation Z, which is under 18s, there are, they are a third of the world's population. They are massive. They are such a huge part of the world, you know, 2.4 billion of them. And they are, one, all well-educated because education is available regardless if you're in a developed nation or a developing nation. Two, they're learning from the best tutors in the world because they're accessing the same great um, knowledge sources and three they are so hungry for great careers that they are immersing themselves in technology and digital because they know they're the careers of the future and so 
our really our competition now is a global competition, but also a global audience and customers. So if we figure it out as a country as small as New Zealand, we're now opening up to a massive new audience. But the under 18-year-olds fundamentally think differently. They are all about ethical standards. They're all about transparency, sustainability. They want environmentally to make sure there's not a negative impact. They don't want to own a home. They don't want to own a car. They don't want to work for a corporation. They want to be able to have great experiences and to dip in and out of education because that's the only world they can imagine because every other world they see didn't work. Mm. And do you think even, even uh, campaigns like the divestment um, campaign we're seeing both at the University of Auckland and I think Auckland Council about divesting out of uh, assets that are oil producing or seen to be um, harming the environment, do you think that's kind of symptomatic of that, um, that movement you've just been talking about? It's partially, but if you look broader than that and you look at managed funds across the world, so people who are investing other people's money into, into major uh, funding opportunities, they are also pulling out of fossil fuels mainly because uh, the peak price for fossil fuels, particularly oil, has already come and gone. So we're on the de- de- decline from here on in. So if you're investing money and in, in trying to make you know, money turn into more money, you're out of fossil fuels and you're into solar. It's just a fact solar is on the way up. It's an exponential growth. Uh, oil is going to come down very rapidly. So part of it's driven by sustainability, but part of it's just financial saying, actually, peak car ownership, for example, is... An, is a forecast to be 2020. So after 2020, the number of people who move into a ride-sharing model, particularly as we go into autonomous cars, you know, it's a very quick transition from an Uber ride, people going, I don't need a car, I'll just have Uber. Then more competition comes into that space, the Zoomies come in, more competition comes in, people start going, do I really need a car? No, I don't. And suddenly the transition to a ride-sharing economy makes far more sense because once we go into a fully electric fleet, the cost of those rides will come right down, the cost of car ownership will go right up, and actually it's going to be a great thing for New Zealand. But we're talking you know, in a very short time that we will start looking at car ownership very differently. And before we started recording again, you, you were talking about the key sort of value that people should, should start considering is curiosity. Yeah, I think curiosity is what drives human behaviour. And if we're not curious, then what are we? Because actually, you know, we can stagnate very quickly. And I think it doesn't take very, it's not very hard to, to picture one of your friends or family who literally have got a closed mindset and they've, they've just stopped. And it's not even an age thing. They've just somehow come to the conclusion that where they are is where they want to be and where they want to stay without any consideration to the pace and change of the world. And so, I mean, I I certainly still have these conversations with people who say, well, I'm going to build my dream house at 40 and and I'm going to be there for the rest of my life. And I'm just, this is just, you know, it's not the reality. When you're going to a population of the world that's already doubled in my lifetime, it's going to triple before, between 1950 and 2050, We are literally, you know, we're using so many resources. We cannot sustain the planet the way we are. So we're going to have to all think about how do we share houses? How do we share facilities? How do we share education? How do we scale it so we can reach the masses? The middle class has has grown dramatically, 2008, 18% of the world middle class. By 2030, just 13 years away, 60% of the world's middle class, which means they're fighting for the same jobs that you are. You know, they are educated, uh, they're young, because of the growth of this young uh, Generation Z, or Z. And then they are looking globally. They're not about staying in their home country. They're about globalisation. They're about internationalisation. They're about you know, global events and consequences. They want to be citizens of the world. 
Um, I, I just think that the changes are so driven by social change and social need, much more so than corporate greed. And we, we've never seen that before. You know, we're, we're before those who ruled the world had the deepest pockets, and now it's, it's mobilizing the crowd. You know, it's, it literally is people changing the way that we act because there's so many of them. And I think it's a really big positive for New Zealand because, you know, we learned to look, need to look back at when we, were, we decided to become nuclear-free. That came from a populist belief across the community which mobilised change and, and it came into practice. You know, so as a small country, we can actually decide who we are going forward. We can define as a country what we want to be and what we want to be good at and what we want to be known for. But fundamentally, the things that prop up our country right now are all under threat. You know, our biggest GDP earner today, as of the beginning of this year, is tourism. Tourism is its saturation point. It's a low-value economy. It's a low-wage economy. It doesn't have the ability to scale. We can't fit any more people into our country. There's no more flights that can come in. There's no more hotels to put them into. The roads are getting crazy. So tourism, number one. Number two is, is dairy. We can't take milk from cows and feed 10 billion people. So already we've seen a really big growth of different types of milk products. So plant-based milk products are the biggest growth industry in the food area after, after basically um, herbs and spices. So number two, it's plant-based. It could be rice milk, it could be cocoa milk, it could be other forms of milk. Anything that's more sustainable by the next generation will be more interesting and actually just be taken up because they want sustainability on the planet. Mm, and I read an interesting stat that about, uh, I think it was in 2014 or 15, that plant-based milk products increased um, sales by about 127% in those 12 months. It sounds right. Yeah, it was about that. And, and also there's just starting to see a decline now in milk from cows and the same thing uh, soy milk is very unpopular it's very unsustainable so you know people are walking away from soy as an option but we're also seeing that with protein so we, we can't have the argument that people will still want to eat protein from a cow or off a sheep because actually we, we don't have enough sheep and cow in the world to give protein to 10 billion people so actually we're going to have to think so right now we're starting to see the lift of again plant-based meat plant-based fish um, we're starting to see the changes in terms of people starting to eat insects, which in face value sounds just awful. But actually what they're doing is, you know, it's like cricket flour. You can go down to Whole Food shops anywhere in New Zealand and buy cricket flour. Uh, and it's the change of sustainability that we're looking at. Because in New Zealand we have a plentiful, you know, we're a plentiful nation of water and, and open spaces and rivers and seas. But actually that's not typical of the rest of the world. So what we see here is so we are such a minority now. You know, we are a minority because of we're an aging population compared to the developing world, which is a young population. We're a minority because we are European, mostly at the moment, and that tips over by, by 2040. The New Zealand we know um, amazingly becomes more and more multicultural to the point that Pākehā become 48% of the population, which changes the dynamic again. You know, we are... An anomaly because we're a small country. We're an anomaly because we don't invest in things like professional development, so we've got lots of traditional subjects being taught. We're an anomaly in so many ways that until we leave this country, what we don't see is the, the opportunities or the threats that are coming you know, imminently on our doorstep. Mm. If I can almost uh, pose the counterfact... Um, so if, if we've got all of this trend towards plant-based milk, artificial meat... Um, well, artificial, but it's not artificial as in it's not chemical. It's made from other plants. So it's actually natural ingredients. Mm. 
But would you almost say, or would you guess that there might be the counter trend towards people valuing um, the types of goods that New Zealand does provide, like real cow meat or real sheep meat or real milk? Do you almost see that there might be that counter trend also? So yes, there will be in a certain minority, but it will be like the cigarette smokers of yesteryear. So if you um, say, for example, you're a 65-year-old woman and you say, well, I still want to eat my steak from a cow, this next generation are going to look at them and say, so you're prepared to kill a cow uh, that's polluted our waterways, that has had a, contributed to the greenhouse gases, that uses huge amounts of energy. So your choice to have a steak off a cow is detrimental to the world and I'm prepared to eat a plant-based steak. Mm. You know, there's going to be a pushback because actually those people who can afford that and want to stand their ground will be balanced out by people saying, you, you don't get that choice anymore because our world population is too big. And this sounds all very melodramatic and I'm not trying to make this, you know, so that it's all sort of scary, but it's more of a factual-based thing. We've had choices before because we weren't in a position where the world was so populous. In the same way that driverless cars, I can tell you how many times I have conversations with people who say, well, I'm never going to stop driving my car. I love driving. And you say, well, hang on, if you're driving a you know, one or two ton piece of machinery and that's proven to be 10 times more dangerous than a, an AI-driven car, why do you get that choice? Like, What is it that makes you think that you can drive a dangerous piece of machinery when we know we've got the technology now to have a fully autonomous fleet where risk of death is lowered dramatically? Of course, there's also takes away the risk of drinking and driving or texting and driving or smoking and driving or, or arguing and driving. You know, there's, um, So what happens is, we're trying to get this world to be much more egalitarian and much more even for everyone at the cost sometimes of our choices that we've once mm-hmm. had. And have you personally changed uh, some, some of your, I guess, life choices, if I can use that kind of term, um, because of some of those issues that you've just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm vegetarian and, and, and I, so I probably sound like that's the reason why I'm having this such strong views, but it's not. I mean, I think that we have to think about what, what we actually take from the, you know, the ground and the land. But I, I also think about the sharing economy. You know, it's interesting looking at people and friends around me where we're sharing properties a lot more. We're actually going in and not having everybody having their own place. And I even have a shared dog. So I have one week, one week on, one week off with a friend. So we don't have a dog all the time. And it literally, and it, because we realized we both wanted to have a dog, but we couldn't always be available. So, you know, sometimes it's, um, which sounds like a strange example, but the sharing economy actually works well. Why do we all have a lawnmower in our garage when actually we only need it once a week or once a month um, or a chainsaw or anything else? This new way of looking at things is saying, actually, how do we share resources? So that's not about we all investing in duplication, which is bad for the environment, but actually saying, what do we need that is good for the environment and take away that duplication, that commercialization of things, which we really don't need to keep duplicating. And I think that comes back to optimization of thinking about um, how, how can I make sure that if I buy a chainsaw that I'm actually using it in its most productive way and it's not by leaving it in, uh, in the garage out the back or the, or the garden shed. Yeah, and we're seeing that in the way people are building new uh, subdivisions and where they have a tool shed across a number of houses where you, you know, there's, they, they set up and they put five bikes in there, a couple of chainsaws, some, you know, some leaf blowers and a, you know, and a lawnmower and everybody shares that. And that's happening in New Zealand today. That's nothing new. Or high rises where they have one big commercial kitchen available in the building and then tiny little kitchenettes inside the apartments to, to encourage people to get out of their apartments and to share facilities in a communal environment 
which gets better facilities for them, but also means they have a place to hang out with friends, which is not in a small apartment. And those sorts of things just make sense, that we don't need to duplicate, you know, 100 kitchens and 100 laundries in one high-rise building. And so I'm really excited by this whole shift to thinking about to be human, it's about having experiences and it's about having time with the people we love and it's about connecting with our friends. It's not about working 60 to 80 hours a week and trying to buy more stuff. And so I think a little bit more along the lines of this Generation Z who are coming through saying, you guys have got it all wrong. They contributed to the, you know, so many of the things that we're fighting against right now and the likes of pollution and climate change and things. So let's really rapidly undo that and go back the other way, which is a big big themes and of a, at a sort of a macro level but at a human level as an individual we can actually contribute to the reversing of some of the things that have happened um, and the first of them is, is redefining what it means to work and to be employed redefine the type of work we choose to be involved in how we value ourselves so it's not about how much you earn it's about how much you contribute and um, so some of these big overarching themes are now being looked at at not just a national level, but an international level, and things like the universal basic income, so that people could potentially have an income right across an entire country. And in fact, last week on the this What Next TV show, uh, it was close to 80% of New Zealanders watching this TV show, which was hundreds of thousands, you know, I think at the time 150,000 votes, to say we should trial universal, the universal basic income in New Zealand, which was astounding that 80% of people said, yeah, we should be trying that here now. So, you know, I think that there's a lot more willingness in this country for bold changes than we've seen in a very long time. It'll be very interesting to look into the demographics of who, was, of who typically watches that show to, to try and use that as a proxy for, you know, what types of people um, might, might be willing to try out universal basic income. But knowing what we, we, we can kind of gather from who actually watches live TV would expect that it's slightly older people who would typically um, see, view as more conservative. Yeah, it's interesting because it was, it was not even just um, older because it's on television. It was a Channel One program, which is, again, more conservative, mm. but it did stream live. The whole program was streaming live and the voting was live and on Facebook. So it had different demographics, but all of the votes were broken down by region and age group. So for the majority of the questions, uh, they were very even right across all age groups and things. And in fact, even some um, some towns have put themselves forward and said, hey, we, we would be up for this. So I know one was Kaitaia, for example. I think the other one was Gisborne. Um, so there's actually even to the point where people are saying, I want it here in my town. So I think um, there's going to be some really interesting conversations over the next couple of years as we start to think about what New Zealand will be in, say, in 20 years, because mm. if, we're, if it's changing, our population will continue to grow and it will become more uh, multicultural, which brings huge amounts of opportunity. But we do need to think about what we want, because at this point we're at crossroads. You know, we could become the sort of the, the South Pacific destination for tourism and, and have, like we have right now, the majority of our students in terms of subject choices are focused on tourism and hospitality. That's not going to be the defining point of our, our country, I certainly hope, and that we will be able to change and become you know, a hothouse of scientific research and development and innovation and, and great cool companies doing amazing things to solve big problems. And you know, that, that is a choice we get to make right now, but that comes from we have to think about the education system, the university programs and qualifications that we teach, how we teach, when we teach, who is a student, you know, this lifelong learning. 
we have to recognize our jobs aren't going to be the same. We have to recognize that we're going to live to be a lot, lot longer and have to earn a wage or a salary or an income or something until we decide we can afford to live because if there's no pension, you know, we're going to have to think about that very seriously. And we have to, you know, the big um, elephant in the room is we have a significant issue around poverty. So um, in this country, which has been addressed in all sorts of ways, but again, we've got to address that quickly because if the future taxpayers of New Zealand are predominantly Maori, Pacific and Asian, um, we have two of those, you know, Maori and Pacific are still underachieving dramatically, which means we're going to have to figure that out so that we are educating and they are having a successful future. And right now, uh, that's still you know, something we're working on. And without giving too much of a plug to Marama Fox, who I interviewed about two weeks ago, um, specifically about Māori, Māori and Pacifica achievement and how to improve that, um, she, was, she was very hot on uh, more Māori models of practice, um, yeah. seeing that uh, the, the Victorian or Western system of education hasn't really worked for, for, for many Māori and Pacifica students. I mean, do you have any thoughts around that, Francis? Oh, look, I absolutely 100% agree. And what's really interesting and in research now proves is that if you teach any student using a Maori philosophy, everybody learns. If you teach Maori Pacific using a, a Pākehā or European philosophy, no, only the Europeans will, will learn. Why so, is that? Because the concept is very different the way you learn. So fundamentally it's around the concept of... Um, Fano, really, where people like to, Maori Pacific like to work collectively. They like to come to conclusions and solutions together. They're very um, about equity and equality. And Pakiha, we're taught to you know to actually learn for ourselves. And actually, it's all about assessment as as an individual right, and we want to prove as an individual. And actually, that doesn't work. So if you're putting barriers like exams and processes, which are all about this, the individual in a Maori Pacific context, it doesn't work. And actually, nobody hired is hired because of individually what they can contribute. It's what they can contribute across a group. So I think we've got to get it right for industry as much as we've got to get it right for Maori and Pacific. And we know this now. So we're now seeing some really exemplary examples of schools and processes and systems that are addressing it, but they're not on scale. So we, uh, the points that were raised in your previous podcast, I would, you know, everything you say is absolutely the way we need to be thinking about the future of education and also addressing some of the inequality that's coming through because we haven't addressed it. Mm. And just get to head back to the question before about curiosity and, and knowing that this is such an important skill or trait um, for young professionals in particular to, to pick up on so that we can be successful in the future. I mean, do you have any particular tips or, or ways that people can um, become more curious? Yeah, I think the very first one is think about who you surround yourself with because if you're in an echo chamber of people who think just like you, who work with you, hang out, done the same university as you, then actually your life experiences are going to be limited because actually no one's going to argue and take a different point of view. If you can be involved with organisations, groups, meetups, whatever they might be, of people who actually think quite differently than you, that actually gives you a point of difference. You go, well, hang on, I never thought of it that way and makes you curious to go, why do you think about it that way, whereas I have quite a different point of view? You know, you have to have those challenges for to actually be able to take in information and actually do something with it as opposed to just bury it in the back of the brain and go, well, it's not really relevant to me. And so curiosity stem from uh, divergent thinking, divergent situations. So put yourself into positions of slight discomfort, you know, going and hanging out with people who perhaps you wouldn't normally see or going to countries that you haven't been to or listen to, you know, even to podcasts 
of, of things you may not listen to normally or TED Talks or whatever it might be because there's lots of different ways of looking at things to create different solutions. Because it's so easy to, to look at the things that you've always looked at and that agree with you because it's self-validating. Um, even I, one of the things I've done to, to try and uh, assuage my, my guilty Facebook habit when I wake up in the morning is that I, I've, um, I've set my notifications so that I always get Economist and National Business Review articles in my feed um, first. But now that now as as you're talking, I'm like, well, a lot of those reinforce my my own opinions about um, about life and economics and politics. And perhaps the best thing to do is to jump on my Facebook settings straight after this and start. Uh, no, it's not called super liking. That's Tinder. Um, and start <laughs> seeing the listener first, or start seeing any any of these uh, news publications that that are, I suppose, the counter view to what, to what I'd always typically done. Yeah, look, I think probably the first thing is maybe Facebook shouldn't be the place you aggregate all your sources because there is no uh, ability to... The algorithms there are all about what you see is what you're going to see more of. Um, Google has some rules built into it, but actually what I say to people, if you really want to get unbiased information that doesn't just reinforce what you believe, uh, in Chrome as a browser, if there's an incognito mode, um, so if you go into Chrome, drop down the menu and you see incognito, do your searching in there because then it's not actually set to your preferences. It's set to whatever Google thinks on a random basis. And so you're actually starting to get um, a different feed. I personally use Twitter um, because actually I can aggregate feeds and put in a whole lot of things which I would never read normally in different publications and then go through and, and make sure that I've got lots of contrasting views particularly over certain topics you know if you're looking at a topic like Brexit having you know five or six different counter views about why and how it happened is much more valuable to me as someone who does a lot of research than having a couple of mainstream views which are very similar. Fascinating and I was uh, about a year ago now I was on a panel for the Employees and Manufacturers Association in New Zealand uh, up here in Auckland and I was up there talking about millennials and you know things like that and typically to an audience of older HR professionals and quite a brave lady I thought put up her hand she was probably you know 50 or 60 and and she said look you're you're here talking to me about millennials and Generation Z but how scared are you of Generation Alpha and, and Beta who are coming afterwards and I said I'm I'm extremely frightened because I have no idea what it's going to be like what do you think Generation Alpha and Beta are going to be like and what, what's going to typify them yeah so just for those who don't know so Alpha is five and under so they're just starting to into our school system again they are a big populace um, group but not as big as what we currently have with Generation Z so I think their world um will be completely different than what our world is today I mean I have the absolute luxury of working with young people every day so you know, I get to see firsthand under under thirteen year olds on mass right across the country. So, a lot of the things that I've researched are just validated by actually sitting amongst thousands of young people. And the under thirteens have got a completely different world view. I mean, everything they think about, they self educate. So, if they want to know the answer to something, they Google it, they YouTube it, they then trial it, they apply it, they ask their friends about it, they rate it. You know, everything is about finding the solutions. Um, they're great problem solvers. They they don't believe anything they read. They they actually validate it from multiple sources. Whereas, you know, I can I can spend time with um, professionals who literally believe things they see on Facebook because it's on Facebook. You know, we've got they're much more cynical about the world. And I think that the other thing is they know that the careers of the future are going to involve things like machine learning and. and and artificial intelligence and they understand the importance of data and they're looking at automation in ways that 
um, say the millennials and the baby boomers and the Gen Xs and Ys are, are not looking at because they haven't actually seen the impact yet. But if you're young and you're researching online, um, you know, what we would call browsing, they are seeing a completely different world and they are going to define it differently. And I think the other really amazing thing is is primary schools in New Zealand and many intermediate schools have already figured that out. If you go into a primary school today, they are a hive of activity. Most of them have digital devices readily available and utilised. They are collaborative. The school model today is what we call an innovative learning um, environment. So if you were building a school today and you went to Ministry of Education, they gave you funding. The only model you can build is an innovative learning model, which is typically 100 kids in a class with three teachers. Uh, There are pods of people working. There is furniture that's all different types of styles. There are some people learning in analog ways. Some are doing digital. Uh, The kids are self-forming groups. They are highly creative, they're using video, they're filming each other. And this is from five years old up to about 12 years old. And so even within traditional schools, if you're building a new building, if you happen to rebuild for any reason, like they've done in Christchurch or growing schools, the same thing applies. So there isn't a going back to what we call a cell classroom with rows of desks that we once knew. All of that's gone until we get into many of our high schools and almost all of our universities, that we have this idea of lecture-based learning mm. so the the young new generation are just going to bypass those things that don't make sense to them if i was to sum up our conversation today francis i'd probably summarize it as four c's uh increasing curiosity creativity and cynicism and then looking for the counterfact nice i really like that yeah and that's a probably a pretty good way of summing it up fantastic i mean it, just just to finish off is there anything else you'd like to say directly to new zealand's young professionals yeah, look, I, I hope that no one's sitting out here thinking, gosh, this is the end, because actually it's it's the beginning. It's the beginning of a time where we get choice and, you know, things that maybe you're doing today, you're not going, this is not the most exciting work I've ever done. And I'd like to be thinking about other opportunities in my life to do different things. All of that will be real, that you'll get the chance to have a great career now. But within 20 years, you'll have another great career. You'll have a choice to do whatever you want to do. Um, so the most important thing is to have an mo- open mindset and to go, well, this is just a great opportunity for me to have a life that is full and rich and has many opportunities. You know, it could be here, it could be offshore. Um, and, you know, I think that you have the benefit of being young and you have the benefit of being part of this really amazing world that becoming more middle class and healthier, wealthier, less divide. And, you know, I think it's exciting. So I hope you take some excitement away with us. Francis Valentine, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the New Zealand Young Professionals podcast. I am your host, Ed McKnight. Uh, You can reach me personally. My email is ed at edmcknight.com. Check us out on Facebook. We are NZ Young Professionals podcast or our website is nzyoungprofessionalspodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app. Until next time. The New Zealand Young Professionals Podcast, hosted by Ed McKnight and brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Podcasts New Zealand.